Hello, Barry. Welcome back. It is it's that time again of the week. And I, I actually think it's the first time that we are ever recording on a Friday, which feels like a bit of a big event for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, how are you doing? I know you had a I mean, I know it's a few days ago now, but from someone who had never been to the Kruger National Park ever in his life, uh, I saw some more pictures coming through, and uh, <laughs> I guess what what a, what a way to spend Valentine's Day. Chad, I'm making up for lost time. 28 years having never been to the park, and now I've been there twice in two months. Um, <laughs> so it was an absolutely amazing weekend. I had a really, really good time. had amazing sightings. The weather was cool and kind of raining throughout, so it wasn't that 40-degree heat that everyone tells me about. So from my two Krug experiences, Chad, they've been near perfect. So I had a really, really good time. How are you doing? Yeah, no, good, good, good. Uh, didn't quite go to Kruger National Park. I'm still very much in a, a lockdown with it, what seems like no end in sight. Although I'm very excited uh, for next week, Monday, we're going to be hearing from Boris. Hopefully he's got some good news. Um, because, yeah, this this lockdown, Barry, it's a, it's, it's a different ball game, <laughs> if I'm completely honest. Uh, <laughs> it's been a whole lot more tough. Um, so, so anyway, uh, everything's all decent on my side. Wish I could have said I'd been to the Kruger. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, Valentine's day was decent to be honest, while we're on that topic of Valentine's day, um, you know, we can't just skip through some of these big, uh, you know, these big days. So, so, I mean, we, we basically just try to make the most of doing this at home. So in the morning, my fiance, it was her kind of, she set everything up for the morning and I had this wonderful breakfast with pancakes and chocolates and raspberries and all sorts of stuff, a whole full spread. And then the afternoon slash evening was was my time. Um, and I basically turned this room that I'm currently in into a little kind of movie night vibe. So that little couch oh, behind me is a sleeper wow. couch. You know, slid that open and uh, brought the TV in here with the kind of surround sound, all of that kind of stuff. And it was actually really, really cool. So a good but very different Valentine's Day for sure. See, it sounds like you make us all look bad, Chad. You guys are very romantic. It sounds amazing, man. It sounds really, really cool. I was lucky enough to be with a brand new girlfriend, actually, at the Kruger Park. And so we spent the day in the car, which is always a challenge for any new relationship. But we managed to get through all the... In hours <laughs> without killing each other. So that was a good sign. Um, and it was a, a lovely experience to get out there and just kind of enjoy the African bushveld. So I feel for you, Chad. I keep keep hanging in there, dude. Keep going. The lockdowns will end soon, hopefully, and hopefully we'll get out of this alive. Um, but it certainly has been a strange, strange couple of months, that's for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, yeah, congrats on that front. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than all of that, Barry. Let's uh, get into the meat of it. We've got quite a lot to talk about today. The week that was. The week that was. Okay, I guess in terms of chronology. Oh, sorry. Am I jumping ahead here? Chad, Chad I, have, I have to tell the <laughs> listeners something. I've never seen Chad put so much into a show notes for an Across the Pond episode. So something happened this week, guys. It was a slow week at work or something. Chad's got a lot to chat about. So we've got a long, long list today. And Chad, we're going to try and keep it relatively brisk as we move through them, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we are. I mean, it's, it's a lie, though. It's a complete lie because the only reason it looks like a lot, Barry, is because I've got a few little <laughs> graphics and pictures in there, which clog up a so. lot of the documents so. <laughs> um so it's a good tactic
tactic actually to to make it look like I've been doing quite a lot. Uh, but but thank you, internet, for <laughs> allowing me to copy and paste uh, these very useful <laughs> infographics. Um, so yes, let's briskly pass through, but obviously keep it conversational as always, Barry. Uh, I want to just kick off with where we've been talking, uh, where we started the podcast the last couple of weeks, and that is uh, vaccines and the vaccine rollout across the world. Um, so I wanted to talk about what's happening here in the UK. Obviously, we, we there's a little touch point every week when we, we just do a quick little update. Um, now that number is looking at uh, sort of 16.4 million people. That is for the first dose uh, of vaccines and then you've got about 600,000 people who have already received their second doses um, so it's all about the you know the prioritization of the vaccine looking at all of the uh, all of the different groups and I mean mid-feb the goal was basically to get everyone uh, from you know from the age of 75 and above and then those clinically vulnerable people above 70 but they've kind of then moved on to the next few groups um, so obviously as we go on, uh, you know, from 60, 65 to 69, uh, then looking at people with underlying health conditions, 60 to 64, and all of that kind of stuff. So it's progressing through the age brackets really quite quickly. Um, and then just talking about, you know, geographically speaking, where, do, where does the UK sit? And uh, I mean, I've, I've got this great little chart here from, uh, from BBC, which is looking at the vaccine doses per 100 people in each particular country. And Israel is right at the top they're, they're flying through obviously we've seen all of their uh, all of their trials and all of their their data coming through which i think is proving very useful for the rest of the world uh the uae i didn't realize they were so far along actually um they, they kind of second there and then quite quite far down there the U, the, U, the uk is uh, is next up followed by the us and you know the rest of rest of europe and what whatnot um so certainly certainly in a good place uh, on the uk front um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just one of those things we're going to be talking about for a little while. Indeed, indeed. I, I don't think you should downplay it. Chad. I think the UK has done yeah. a really good job in getting these things out as quickly as possible. Uh, I, I know for all the drama and all the chaos and everything we've seen over the past year or so, the UK have really done well to deploy those yeah. things as quickly as they can. And of course, they've been behind a lot of the, 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 the generation and the inventions of these vaccines. And so I think you, you can give yourself a little pat on the back there and really kind of push yourselves forward. Of course, there are lots of new strains coming out. We talked a lot about the South African strains. So this thing is not over. But the fact that you've got a quarter of your population vaccinated already, or at least the first dose, is, yep. is really, really good to see. Um, and so hopefully we can learn to kind of follow in your guys' footsteps and, and take a little bit of inspiration from you guys. We had our first uh, doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine arrive this Amazing. week. So that's exciting from this side of the pond. Yeah. Um, but of course, we know we're near a quarter yet. So it's really good speed to see, Chad. Yeah, it is. And uh, I mean, just while I'm looking at this graph, obviously, I, I'm not considering the population size of each of these countries. So so you're completely right, even though it, it might sit third on that list uh, in terms of total uh, as a total basis. The UK is doing incredibly well. Um, the the, yeah, the this next is, this, is, this, is per, this is per 100 people. So this yeah, is yeah. based on the population. 100 percent. Exactly. So it actually, is, yeah. it's, it's a really, really good status. Yeah. yeah. Definitely, yeah. On a total kind of absolute basis, I think you're, you're completely right. Uh, the UK is doing very, very well. I mean, the next evolution of this uh, discussion as we work through the population and as everyone, we kind of get towards that uh, herd immunity that we're all trying to achieve. Uh, I saw something really quite interesting this week, and that is now talking about vaccine passports. Uh, when we look at how this world is going to open up again to resemble that which, uh, you know, kind of looking a little bit like it was before before COVID, BC, as we always say. 
Um, vaccine passports seem like a decent idea. I mean, Greece is, is looking at that in terms of being able to get some travel arrangements uh, with the UK. So, And obviously, we'll see more and more countries adopting that going forward. Um, so, you know, just in terms of vaccine passports, do you have any strong feelings on this? I mean, obviously, what you kind of end up doing indirectly is, uh, you know, making it a whole lot harder for those people who don't want to take the vaccines. Um I mean, potentially there'll still be solutions for them, uh, being the the test system where you just make sure you got a negative result before entering a particular country. But yeah, do you have any strong feelings? It's 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 a dangerous one, Chad. I, yeah. I, I completely understand the the intention and what they try to do with that sort of idea, but it gets into murky territory because at the end of the day, you still want the freedom to be able to not take the vaccine, even yeah. though I think we should take it and it's kind of I, I feel very strongly about that personally <laughs> I, I don't want to be in a position where um, someone is being forced to take it because they have to access their, their workplace or yep. travel or something else in their, in their environment and so it's, it's a weird one because of course every country is going to act in its own best interest so it's going to be very easy for a UK or US to say hold on a minute we're going to close our borders to everyone unless you have this piece of paper or a microchip or whatever it is in your body right that kind of shows who you are and that you had the vaccine um, but I think it's a dangerous precedent to set. Uh, from an ethical perspective, you kind of you're hoping that people are going to buy into the concepts in in the right way. But unfortunately, yeah. it could exacerbate the inequities and the inequality we're seeing across the world. It's very clear if you look at those stats that it's the first world that have access to these vaccines. The developing world yeah. haven't haven't touched them yet, right? And so you again you exacerbating those those divides and forcing people against their will to do something that is 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 me, is a medical thing and so i don't know chad it, it's it feels icky to me i don't know what you think yeah i get it i completely get it i mean i think in terms of in terms of travel it, it makes sense it, in terms of travel i think the option should be open there like you say for those who want to have it um, great it's less of an inconvenience uh, you can still get in by having a negative pcr test or whatever the case is but it's less of an inconvenience that you now have uh, you know you've been vaccinated whereas i think where this the interesting part here comes in barry is talking about whether these passports are going to be applied locally and i think that's when uh, we start we start getting into a bit more of a tricky conversation and 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 that is the next discussion that i wanted to have and uh, basically we've seen one company fairly small company in the big scheme of things uh, somebody a company by the name of Pimlico Plumbers and uh, they've got four, about 400 people 400 odd workers and uh, and their sort of CEO whatever you want to call him apparently looks a bit like Rod Stewart um, he's kind of come out and, and said straight out that uh, they're going to have a no jab no job policy so essentially <laughs> if any of the workers do not want to get the vaccine, any one of the vaccines that are on offer, they effectively can't work for the company. Um, and and basically, he's he's cleared this through his sort of employment lawyers, uh, apparently, you know, through health and safety laws and all that kind of stuff. It uh, it it looks like it checks all the all of the boxes, which is which is very interesting. And when when we start then you know mapping this out to bigger organizations. Uh, the corporates who are in these massive sky rise buildings. Um, it's really quite tricky. It would surprise me if that passes employment law, Chad. Like that, that is an interesting thing. I, I don't know how they managed to get that yeah. right. Because if you think about it, you're not supposed to be able to discriminate in the workplace against certain criteria. And a lot of it is against race and gender and all that sort of thing. But as far as I understand, it's also health related. 
I don't think you can turn someone down for a job if they have, say, a heart condition or, or some sort of health condition, unless unless it's like a pilot and you need them to be able to see, for example, like yeah. if it's very direct. But in an office environment or a plumbing environment, I, I don't know how you get that right. Because as far as I understood, you weren't allowed to discriminate like that. Um, yeah. But we're we possibly in new territory. I mean, this is a brand new phenomenon. Yeah. Maybe the law hasn't caught up. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I think it's I think it's completely dependent from, from from the little bit. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. Let me just put my hands up there and say I'm not a lawyer. Uh, right at the start of this no discussion. Ways, Jen. <laughs> um, but you know, from everything I've read about this, um, essentially, it, it depends on what those contracts look like currently in their current state. But in terms of for for new employees and going forward, uh, certainly it seems like uh, where where the, the the line kind of fits here is it's okay to insert that as a clause into contracts for new employees going forward. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I'd, it's definitely not the end of this discussion. It's it's right the very beginning. Um, but I think it's something that we're certainly going to have to keep an eye on. Um, and then when we when when we go back to uh, you know not just work as normal life again, but when we go back to uh, going to sporting venues and pubs and all of this kind of stuff, do we do we at some point see some sort of vaccine passport that allows you to go in? Uh, Boris says no, but uh, I mean we've seen these kind of U-turns in the past. Yeah, definitely. And the question that comes to my mind is that. How many passports are you going to have? Are you going to have to get a yep. new one for every new variant as you yep. get vaccinated against? We've chatted a lot about this in the past and that this is not the end. Like this is going to yep. keep going. We have to, we have to learn to manage this, not like destroy it completely. So are you going to have a passport with a page for every single new variation? Well, I don't know how that's going to play out. And I don't know about you, Chad, but getting in and out of a sports stadium, for example, is is takes long enough already. <laughs> Imagine having to queue up and have to check passports as you go yep. into a sports stadium. Um, it certainly is going to be a brand new world, and I, I don't quite know how it's going to play out. My gut says that none of this is going to stand up in a court of law yeah. at the end of the day. I, I, I don't know if it's possible to put these sorts of restrictions in place without some serious social uprising. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, this has become a political issue already. Imagine if it starts affecting workplaces and sports stadiums and all these things. It's going to become completely political, yeah. and it's going to become even more divisive. And so in my opinion... If, if if I'm if I'm if I own a company and I'm looking at these kind of situations, I I don't know if I want to be putting myself on the side of of a like black and white. This is how it is, and you have to either get with the program yeah. or not. I think you have to have a softer approach and try and approach it in a more kind of case by case way. And if there are people who feel very strongly about not taking the vaccine, can you sit and talk to them and understand exactly what their concerns are and try to deal with it in that way, yeah. rather than coming out and making it a big deal that says cool. I, I know why he's doing it. He's doing it so he can say to his clients, listen, all of our plumbers, no matter who yeah, they are, yeah. they'll come into your house and they, they've got the vaccine. So I understand exactly why he's doing yeah, it. Yeah. But I just, I don't know how it holds up in the long term. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. It's, uh, it's like I said, certainly not the last we're going to be speaking about it, um, but it does. It presents so many like interesting avenues here where people have these beliefs that might be core to their, their person. They might live their life and treat their body in a certain way and want to... Uh, completely you know evaluate the merits of things whatever the case is everyone's entitled to their own uh, views but I agree with you I think the avenue of encourage but not force uh, seems to be seems to be the one that I would be a lot more strongly behind um, the next thing we wanted to quickly just touch over um, is that last weekend uh, although it was Valentine's Day it was also the Lunar New Year 
So it's the year of the ox. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to wish a very happy Lunar New Year to all of our listeners who celebrate it. And uh, I hope you, yeah, I just wish you the best for the year ahead. I must be completely honest. And uh, I heard from from someone I know who, who does celebrate it um, that there's, there's a whole bunch of to-dos and to-not-dos. And one of those to-not-dos is to cut your hair. And uh, for that very reason, I'm looking quite straggly right now um and i think i've passed the grace period and i think it's okay to uh to ask my fiance to uh, get the clippers out but uh i've been i've been trying to not uh, not you know upset anyone barry but wait explain this to me so you know that have your hair cut over the week or over the day or how does it work exactly so in in comp- in all honesty i didn't look into the re- these regulations uh or, or these, <laughs> these good or bad lucks closely enough um but i think i think how it how it stands strictly speaking is is the day after um so i think anything beyond that you're all good there's there's a whole bunch of things you can and can't do like cleaning your house the day after you shouldn't do so you should clean your house in preparation of all of the events and whatever the case is and there's there's loads of other little bits and pieces but luckily i'm i'm over that grace period and i can now uh do a (laughs) a bad haircut you know sort of home haircut job um which is going to be so much better than than doing nothing at least um so so yeah but i thought (laughs) you know we, we might as well just quickly touch on that um for all of our listeners who who's you know celebrate it and I think we can also take the spirit of the ox into this in yes. 2021 and beyond. I think that, that the ox is such a powerful animal. And if we can take a little bit of that spirit and kind of inject it into our day-to-day lives, we can only come out on top, Jed. Yeah, fully, fully agree. Now, the next one, and this is kind of the, the headline of our episode, and it's it's what took up our night last night, Barry. We were both kind of tuned in, although... I'll admit I was in the latter part of the the proceedings, <laughs> uh, but I think I tuned in at just the right point in time. Uh, I'm you not going to speak. Very well. I did. Yeah. You timed it very well. <laughs> I'm not going to speak any more on this um, because this is your forte completely. So talk us through what happened last night and why it's so important for the rest of the world. Oh, Chad, it was so exciting. I felt like a little boy. I don't know why I get so excited by this stuff, but it I find it so inspiring, and I was glued to my screen last night. And we were talking about the new Mars rover that they managed to land on Mars last yeah. night. Uh, we have now landed five rovers on Mars, so this is number five. This one is called Perseverance. And basically, it's this tiny little robot, Chad, this autonomous robot that is now on the surface of Mars and is going to drive around for the next couple of years, taking video, taking cameras, taking photos, I mean, and also samples for the very first time. So it's the very first time we're going to have a rover that's going to take samples of the Martian Earth and then try and get it back to Earth through a very complicated process <laughs> we'll come to in a little bit. <clears throat> but the mission to get it there is just beyond my wildest imagination. Like the amounts of work and engineering and robotics and spacecraft and all of the the stuff that goes into getting something to Mars is quite phenomenal. And the fact that it kind of came to a culmination last night in what they call the seven minutes of terror, which is from from the moment it enters the Martian atmosphere to when it lands on the ground, this thing is doing it fully autonomously. The humans can't control it because it takes too long to send signals back and forth. And so it's on its own. And I just loved watching those NASA engineers sweat as they waited to hear those words that said, 
We have touched down on Mars. Perseverance is safe. And everyone went berserk, Chad. It was so cool to see. <laughs> yeah, it was It was quite a special moment, I must be honest. And uh, I mean, quite a tricky one because they, they're supposedly socially distancing. They've got their masks on. <laughs> they're doing these fist bumps. But uh, every now and then you see this slight little lapse and, uh, you know, obviously just wanting to rejoice with uh, with your colleagues. And what a remarkable milestone. While, while we're chatting through it, Barry, I'm just going to put up this little chart that we've got in our notes. Uh, just so you can kind of talk us through all of these various steps because like you say these sort of seven minutes of terror um, there really is quite a lot of things that can go wrong here and it's just remarkable that nothing did and that's the thing chad if one thing goes wrong it doesn't need one piece of this to go wrong and everything falls apart and these guys have been working on this robot for eight years chad so the reason that they were hugging each other and getting so (laughs) excited is because imagine you've put your whole life into one project for eight years and then it has seven minutes to succeed or fail Uh, so let's run through some of these steps so before we even get to this chart chad remember that this thing took nine months to get there So this thing launched from Earth about nine months ago and has been traveling at the speed of who knows what towards Mars over the last nine months. And eventually it gets to Mars and then we get to this moment where it starts to hit the atmosphere. When it hits the atmosphere... Um, it starts to like really, really burn up because it's going at a phenomenal speed. And as it starts to kind of go down towards the Martian atmosphere, it hits more and more friction. You get this heating that is absolutely crazy. It knocks out all the telemetry. It knocks out all the signals. Yeah. It's just pure kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a firebomb at that point. And what it does is it uses a heating shield whose sole job is just to kind of jump in front of the flames and protect the little guy as it goes down. Amazing. And when, once the heating shield kind of um, disintegrates or falls out, it's done its job and it ejects itself, right? So then you're left with the spacecraft on its own without the heating shield. At this point, it's shooting rockets the opposite way to try and slow it down because you're bringing it down from thousands and thousands and thousands yeah. of kilometers per, per second trying to bring it down so that it can safely land. And so it slows it down with rockets. And then right at the end, it deploys what's called a supersonic parachute, which I think is absolutely <laughs> insane that we are still using parachutes to slow things down oh, when yeah. it's flying at that sort of speed. But this is no ordinary parachute. This is a parachute that is one of the strongest materials on Earth. And it wow. like kind of slows things down very, very quickly. So they deploy the parachute. All of NASA celebrates, right? But now the thing's still going to land in the place where it's supposed to go. So it's trying to aim to something called the Jezero Crater. It's this tiny little area where they've decided, cool, this is the best chance of finding ancient life. So we're going to try and land it there because the rover can't move massive distances. It's not going to go across the whole of Mars. So you've got to land it close to wherever you want to do the exploration, right? So it kind of uses what's called relative, um, what is it called? Relative directions to use a bunch of cameras plus GPS to kind of like move itself and maneuver itself towards where it needs to go. Once that kind of gets close to that, then you've got to try and figure out, cool, how am I going to land this thing? So what it does is it's going too fast to to just land as it is. So it almost, how do I explain this? It separates into two parts, Chad. There's like a, a top part, which becomes this crane that then lowers the actual robot down into the ground. So the actual spacecraft never touches the ground. All it does is it like lowers this little this little um, <laughs> drawbridge or whatever with this robot on it and gently lands it on the surface of Mars and then quickly flies away in case something goes wrong and it explodes. Insane. So the moment it's kind of let go of that robot, it flies away into outer space and it's gone forever. It's kind of commits suicide. It's done its job. It's got, got that robot yeah. to Mars. And all you're left with, Chad, is this little robot called Perseverance and an even smaller little drone. <laughs> 
own helicopter thing yeah. called ingenuity. And that to me, the fact that we can do that from millions of miles away, autonomously on the surface of another planet just blows my mind. It's remarkable. Um, and all of those various steps, I mean, obviously it gets a lot more technical, but I mean, that was even a very good take at a technical explanation, Barry. So, so thanks for that. Um, I mean, I wanted to talk about that that GPS mapping process that you, that you mentioned, because I think that is one of the key differences in this rover and all of the others. And that is kind of the fact that they went out and collected all of this hazard data in this particular region of the planet. Um, so kind of mapped out all of the potential hazards that that could have caused an issue had uh, the rover landed there. Um, and then using the cameras that were on board the rover itself, and like you said, it kind of became an autonomous vehicle at this point. Um, it kind of compared that to to the to that hazard map and and kind of identified a path uh, to getting to one of those one of those locations it's i know it's, it it might seem simple to to some people who have like let's say drones or uh, whatever the case is and and you know you might think there's crazy technology at the moment but but let's be honest being able to analyze all of the hazards in a planet that you don't have super easy access to at this point in time um it's just a crazy feat really it really is impressive, and it is what sets Perseverance apart from its from its predecessor, Curiosity, because it is the first time we've used this with cameras. Previously, we just land purely on GPS, and so if it hit a rock, Chad, it hit a rock, and that was game over. We yeah. just didn't know about it, right? Whereas, like you say, we, we've learned a hell of a lot from the last decade or so, mostly from the self-driving car experiments, right? We've seen all these self-driving car guys really push the field forward, and we've seen these guys try and generate these autonomous systems that can notice passengers and notice hazards and all these things. We've taken that technology and now we are using it in a way that never been used before. So combining all the satellite imagery, combining all the data we have from the previous rovers, we're able then to kind of make this a relative landing thing where it can adjust on the fly. And it's still crazy to think, Chad, that the human had no chance to move it, right? This thing was fully autonomous and yeah. it's looking at the Mars surface and it's trying to figure out where, where should I land? Um, and what I found was quite funny is that all the engineers, they had like a little bet going on back in oh. mission control. They had a picture of the crater and they were betting where it was going to land and they put some <laughs> money on it. And so I don't know who it was, but someone was obviously closest to where it ended, ended up sure. landing and won themselves some money, which is quite cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Um, and I mean, the reason why the humans couldn't control it, and I think this is one of the things to, to discuss, because I couldn't understand at first, you know, face value, why it had to be autonomous from a certain point. But the whole point here, Barry, is that there's a there's obviously a natural time delay between it being gazillion miles away. I don't even know what the <laughs> right number is. Um, and us obviously getting that message feed from it. Um, and that is sort of about 12 minutes or something. Just under 11 minutes and 22 right. seconds, Chad. And okay. that is the distance that it takes light to travel from Earth to Mars. So these these signals are, are traveling at the speed of light, which is not slow, right? It's yeah. very, very fast. But this is so, so far away. But the, by, the, by the time someone on Earth has pushed their little kind of remote control and moved to the right, it takes 11 minutes and 22 seconds for that signal to get all the way to the robot. And then 11 minutes for the signal to come back to say that it actually has moved in that direction, right? So right. it's a impossible to do a real life landing because you've the seven minutes of terror that's how long you have by the time the thing has landed you don't even know it started landing yet that's what's so weird about this yeah. so when we were watching all of the stuff last night chad we were watching it 11 minutes in the past 
it had already landed by the time we started to see some of the data come through. And that's what's such a, it's such a weird thing to think about. We, we don't often fathom how far away these planets actually are. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, you know, just watching it uh, on a YouTube live stream is something completely uh, different to actually like, un- understanding the context of where this fits in uh, into the in in the galaxy, um, okay. So obviously, you've mentioned Barry. the the first The first sort of protocol here is to collect actual physical samples. Uh, but but there's a few other exciting bits and pieces about um, the Perseverance rover being on Mars. Um, you know, like you say, we've we've got the the sidekick, uh, which we we're very <laughs> very excited to see what what happens here. I've put a little picture up of him uh, over there, and I mean, I understand this is the first flight that's that's kind of taken off uh in mars that we know of um you know that will potentially be a bit of a wright brothers type moment yeah so it hasn't taken off yet chad in the coming days it will take its first flight hopefully yeah. uh, but like you say if it succeeds it will be the very first flight that's ever taken place off the surface of mars yeah. and so it is a kind of a wright brothers moment and it is a really special thing so it's this very custom-made drone it's not just a dgi chad it's a very very <laughs> sophisticated very complicated drone and they were calling it a helicopter throughout the the, the proceedings so maybe drones aren't even the right word it might be called a helicopter i don't know but basically, it's this tiny little thing that's going to try and give us better imagery and better kind of photography of the surface of Mars. Because at the moment, we are pointing our satellites at it, and we are using all of our enhancing skills to get the best photos we can. Yep. But if we've got something right on the surface to take high HD photos and video and send it back to us, that'd be amazing. And also, it allows us to see perseverance in action, right? And not just see it from her point of view, but to see it from a bird's eye point of view. And so I'm hoping we'll get some really amazing imagery when Ingenuity finally takes flight i believe in the next couple of days they're going to start doing some tests and obviously they've got to be careful because you've only got one shot if you crash yep. it that's a chat um, and so it's one of those things we have to try and test and see what happens yeah definitely definitely well let's definitely see i mean i i, I kind of saw murmurings of some people being not being very pleased with the quality of the photos uh that that perseverance <laughs> took on its way in and i'm assured the reason why the photos are not looking you know crisp sharp clear is because they've got lens caps on them um just to just to protect <laughs> from all the extra dust or whatever the case is uh, in the landing i mean i i i know me and i know you barry um, I don't think that would have been the first thing on your mind. <laughs> it's such a tough crowd, Chad. Imagine landing a robot on Mars and guys are like, your photos aren't good enough. I'm sorry, but they're not Instagram worthy. It's so ridiculous. We're landing a robot millions of miles away. Can we just relax? Jeez. I think we've been spoiled with all these live streams of all these uh, these rockets from Elon and whatnot. And we forget that this thing is millions of miles away. Yeah. We do not want to be wasting resources on getting Instagram quality photos, Chad. We, we're there for the science. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, we're playing the long game here, getting those samples, hopefully successfully sending them back, taking all sorts of readings while it's out there, uh, sort of atmospheric readings. It's got microphones, hearing the wind blow, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, the stuff that really makes scientists tick uh, 100%. Okay, so that was our anchor story that we wanted to uh, get your thoughts on this week. I mean, is there anything that anyone uh, tuned in currently has anything to say on, on that? Do, do pop us a comment. Uh, we'll certainly have a look at it. I mean, quickly passing through our, the rest of our agenda, Barry, uh, we spoke last week about the Handforth uh, Parish Council, and obviously it was big news last week. They've had another meeting. 
uh, this time attracting a lot of public attention. Sort of thousands of people were tuned in, like 3,000 people <laughs> or something like that were tuned in to see what was going to unfold. And most importantly, Jenny Weaver decided not to run the meeting uh, because it wasn't in the best interest of the council. Uh, and so she passed <laughs> that role over to the clerk. Chad, you know what that feels like? It feels like when you've gone to a soccer game, when you go to see your favorite player and you've paid all this money to go and watch this favorite player and you arrive and he's sitting on the bench. We needed to see Weaver. We needed Weaver exactly. in the action. Oh, so it's frustrating. I can't believe I missed it, Chad. I wish I, wish I could have been part of those 3,000. What a story. I'm, I'm waiting for the movie. I can't wait for the movie. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll, we'll definitely see something. Uh, but I mean, the, the bit that I found absolutely hilarious about it was just the screen grabs of the Zoom call because people were clearly on there playing the fool. You've got uh, people with filters on their faces. Uh, I saw somebody had named their Zoom Sir Elton John. Uh, you know, people were having a, a real good time. Um, so, so yeah, the Panforth Parish Council, uh, I'm sure we, we're going to be talking about this for a while. So let's move on then to something that I think is quite a big speaking point and fits really nicely into all of our interests, Barry, talking about technology and I guess the world 2.0, where we, we look at the way we do things, uh, Uber. And how Uber revolutionized the way that the kind of transport world worked. Uh, some a ruling coming out of the, the Supreme Court in the UK today. This is hot off the heels. Um, and that is the fact that Uber workers should be regarded as employed, not self-employed. Um, and this is really going to, I think, shape the way this gig economy works in the future. This is really big news, Chad, for freelancing and for gig work in particular. It's yep. really, really big news. Of course, this has been a debate for a couple of years now as to what sort of obligations should Uber have towards their drivers? Because the whole idea is that they built this platform yep. and our people can voluntarily sign up and kind of become a freelancer or a contractor with the platform and earn pennies on the dollar without any of the support that you'd normally get through a traditional employment, right, or through a traditional job. And of course, drivers have not been happy with this because Uber has all the negotiating power. They have so much supply of drivers that they can kind of drive that price down and really kind of make it difficult for these guys. And I feel for them. I really do, especially here in South Africa. I really feel for the guys yeah. who drive around and, and, and earn basically nothing, which is, is quite a sad thing. Um, and this is a, a big step for, for this sort of legal debate as to how this actually plays out. Gig work is here to stay. Gig work is a huge trend and the future of work is going to look very different to what it looks like today. And Uber is this kind of, panacea kind of um, example, right? It is that behemoth that everyone thinks about when they think about this new economy. If you think about the number of startups that, that describe themselves as the Uber of X or the exactly. Uber of Y, yeah. right? Uber is the, the company to look at. And so this is very big news and I'm, I'm interested to see what happens with it and kind of do other countries follow suit? Because if, if they do, Uber's business model has to change radically yeah. and you might find that they're going to struggle to kind of keep up the same sort of margins they have been at the moment because what it means is that uber is going to have to then kind of fork out a lot more resources to 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 pay for whatever support they need to support with these employees whatever you call them right yeah. um, and that is either going to mean they're going to push prices up and the cost of your uber ride or your uber eats is going to go up significantly or they're going to have to just kind of cannibalize it themselves and i don't know how it's going to look Chad, but it's big news on that front yeah, it's big news and it's tricky. I mean, you've touched the, all of the key points there, Barry. I mean, that increased cost is now becoming because of the fact that they are going to have to pay minimum wage and uh, obviously holiday pay as well as an employer would. 
And I suppose the key part here, and one of the things that I think is, you know, one of the headlines of the story, um, is that people are, the drivers are regarded as workers, not only while they are busy with a passenger completing a trip, but when they are logged into the app waiting for one as well. And I think, I think that is where the, the kind of key is here because that's basically the, the clock card starts ticking when someone logs into the app and essentially incentivizing having millions of riders around London, uh, ultimately, which is, you know, it's obviously, it's not great for each of the drivers because they hardly ever get a trip. It's not great for uh, just the environment, I guess, with all the fuels going out and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, this is definitely going to uh, get them to, to rethink how many drivers are allowed on the platform because whenever a driver is not driving, they're going to be subject to a sort of minimum wage kind of thing. And I think that's big news. Definitely. And I think what it's going to mean is that they're going to shut the app off and kind of limit those numbers. So I can imagine a situation where if you're a driver, you're going to log on and it's going to say, hold on, we've got too many drivers at this point. Thank you for your, your help, but we don't actually need you. And what that might do is it might increase average waiting times. Yep. Like the whole point of Uber is that it's supposed to arrive within a couple of minutes. And so if there's going to be that economic incentive, you might find yourself waiting seven or eight minutes for your ride, which is not crazy, but it's, it's certainly a different experience to what the current experience looks like. Um, and it changes the whole lot of that stuff. Um, I think where Uber are in a good position is that they have all the data. And the data is what can really make this powerful, right? And so if you're going to be trying to optimize this to the nth degree and try and make them squeeze the most out of whatever these legal changes are going to force of you, the more data you have, the better you're going to be able to do that. And so I've no doubt they've got a team right now working on all these permutations and trying to come up with different ideas and different solutions for this. But um, it's going to change the way we think about gig work entirely, especially if this spreads, this kind of legal change spreads throughout the rest of the world. Yeah, so like you say, I mean, there's there's that effect on the consumer that the the wait times might be longer too. But just just talking about that margin and uh, talking about why this ruling went in the way that it did, because I think I think it's it's great that it's been laid out very clearly for everyone to to see and understand what the basis for the ruling was. Uh, but I think it's it's worth just quickly touching on and uh, the the grounds for this choice was for this decision at least uh, was that Uber sets the fare. So they, they essentially set what the driver's earning capacity is. Um, they, set, they set the contractual terms, and these are not negotiable. A driver can't say, hey, I don't like that clause. I want to change that. Nope, not negotiable. Um, and ultimately, Uber monitored the, the driver's service using the star ratings, uh, which we all, we all love as, as passengers. Um, and obviously, they can terminate their service if they don't achieve a certain rating or if they issue a warning and that rating doesn't approve or, or whatever the case is. So ultimately, the, the end statement there is that the drivers are in a position of subordination to Uber. And the only way that they can increase their earnings is to work longer hours. So I think I think this all makes a whole lot of sense, um, but but one of the other side effects there, Barry. So we, we're gonna we're gonna look at maybe a kind of a less margin for, for Uber, or they're gonna pass that cost on to the consumer. But but secondly, is the idea of now legally calling them a, a transport provider and the effects that that'll have on the tax system. So so VAT. So ultimately, the idea that their fares might now be subject to VAT. Um, and so the question is whether consumers have the appetite to absorb that increase as well. 
And that's been something that traditional taxi cabs have been fighting for years, right? Because yep. they've been paying all the taxes because they consider that sort of service. And Uber comes in and says, we're not a transport company. We're a tech company. All yep. we do is build a platform. That's all we're doing here. Um, and so there's lots of stuff in the tax structuring that's going to come into play here. And again, we've spoken so much about all these tech companies getting around all the tax kind of loopholes and whatnot because this is unprecedented stuff. No one's ever come up with a company like this. Yeah. And so regulation takes a few years to catch up, and we're starting to see it come through in every single sphere of technology. And so I think for the next 10 years, Chad, if you're if you're a lawyer or a tax consultant in, in this space, I think you've got a lot of work in the next couple of years. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. I just want to quickly address a little glitch we seem to be having here, and that is that Barry's video is sort of catching up and slowing down and doing all sorts of weird and wonderful oh, things. No. So oh, sorry no. about that, but but please stick with us because we've got some wonderful <laughs> stuff to keep talking about. So, so pl I know it's a little bit annoying. Uh, hopefully, we'll fix it in future streams. Um, but but do stick with us because we've got some great stuff uh, to keep talking through. So I agree with you, Barry. That is a complete change in in that landscape, and uh, let's let's see what see what happens. I mean, we're still on the week that was. We're kind of 40 minutes in. We're still on the week that was, but just so much stuff happened this week. Um, I, I want to I want to switch to you, Barry, um, and uh, and talk on one of the things that you came across this week because I think it is quite important. Yeah, chat, and that is the the news coming out of Australia related to Facebook. So I don't know if you've been following this at all, but it seems absolutely bonkers to me what's been happening down under at the moment. Yeah. What's been happening in the last few weeks is that there's been a lot of pushback from news agencies, tra traditional newspapers and news agencies who feel like they're losing their relevance because they are, right? Unfortunately, the internet yep. has kind of taken over the space. And if, you, if you're running a newspaper at the moment, you're, you're in big trouble, right? The world yep. is moving and that's kind of, they're struggling as a result. And so what they've done in the, down in Australia is they've kind of banded together and they've tried to fight this by trying to impose what people are calling a link tax, and the idea of this, Chad, is that say say a newspaper is getting linked to on Facebook and sending traffic to to wherever it is, um, they want to get paid for that kind of linkage <laughs> and that news source from Facebook. Yeah. So they want Facebook to pay every single time me or you clicks on a news item and um, going to that site. Um, because at the moment, Facebook are monetizing that attention. And so when they kind of show you those news outlets, they've got ads in between them and they're making yep. their money, yep. but the newspapers aren't. And so they've decided, cool, we're going to try and tax these links. So they kind of came out and said, cool, this is going to be the ultimatum. We put a bill in front of parliament. They did all of this stuff. And Facebook's like, cool story, bro. Okay, well, cool. We'll just ban all the news sites in, in, in Australia. Yeah. And so overnight, they just banned every news site, everything. So, so, so the news sites still exist. As you can still see Australian news from outside of Australia. But if you're sitting in Australia and you go onto Facebook, you, all, the, all the news pages are completely gone. You will yeah. not see any news stories in your, in your news feed. And they just turned it off like that. And now Australia's like, oh, wait, did we actually <laughs> think through this thing? Uh, what's actually happening now? Because that was our source of traffic. And if Facebook just turns off the, turns off the pipes, I mean, what do you do? So, Chad, I don't understand what's going on, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I kind of wish I was in Australia because it sounds like that tidying up of Facebook, which we've been saying for a long time, has just become a platform that is hard to keep up with. It's, there's just so much stuff in it. So a little tidy up of the news feed. Go to <laughs> news sites to get your news, not on Facebook. For me, it sounds amazing. Um, but the, the argument just doesn't wash for me. It doesn't make sense. When when you click on a, a news link on the Facebook platform, 
you go on obviously to to their website and they have their own adverts there so whether the the kind of link originated from google from their own homepage, from facebook regardless when you get to the article there are tons of ads that you have to sift through anyway that those news providers are now going to be losing out on because they want facebook to somehow you know pay them for it and this reminds me barry of the 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 discussion we had earlier this year i think no last year i think it was uh talking about news 24 and their kind of idea of taking this you know monetizing path uh, this paywall discussion and and part of part of their argument was this exact kind of thing um so i think it's interesting but for me it just doesn't wash Chad, you can't do this. Like the whole point of the internet is that it's this interconnected web of knowledge yep. and links are how you transfer information and how you kind of link everything together. That's how it works. If the moment you start taxing links, you destroy the whole nature of the open internet. Yep. And then you might as well go back to the times where everything was siloed and nothing really connected with one another. So I understand the, the frustration of the newspapers. Obviously, they're trying to survive and they're trying to find revenue wherever they can, no matter what it takes. So I understand that desperation. But unfortunately, it just doesn't work in an open internet economy, especially when you're a country like Australia, where you're absolute drop in the ocean of Facebook revenue. Yeah. They will very happily switch that off in no time because you are a tiny, <laughs> tiny, tiny piece yeah. of them and they don't care. If it's India or, or, or like the US or something, it's a different story. But unfortunately, Australia doesn't have that power to be able to kind of bulldoze a big tech company like this. And it's just another reminder of how much power these companies have. They can very willingly just turn off a first world nation, just whoop, done. <laughs> and like you say, force force some digital minimalism down our Australian <laughs> I mean, let's let's talk about digital minimalism. Digital minimalism. <laughs> let's do that because uh, we don't have bloopers anymore, so we just do the live bloopers while we're recording it. Um, but let's quickly talk about that. And one of the kind of striving minimalists that you and I both know and love uh, is a guy by the name of Matt Diavella. And I don't know if you saw. Uh, his latest video talking about obviously he's he's made this move to Australia now and uh, effectively opened up his Instagram app and basically there are no likes there's no number of likes you can you can see your own numbers but you can't see other people's numbers and obviously this has been in in the works for a while and I think they're trialing it in Australia and I guess what they're trying to do is check whether it affects the amount of time people spend on the app <laughs> Uh, you know, because they, they don't really care about, I mean, I, this is my opinion, that they don't really care about the user's uh, mental health. And, and, and that that has been, obviously, that like indicator has been a massive uh, cause of, of uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of unhappiness for a lot of users. So that's also interesting. But it just seems like Australia at the moment are on, on a bit of a rampage, really. We've got the anti-trolling laws. We've got this link tax. We've got Instagram and its likes. <laughs> it, it seems to be the place to be in the world of social media. If you are listening to us from Australia right now, please fill us in on what's going on. Yeah. Please, we, we need we need some reporting from the ground. What is going on that side of the world? Because like you say, they've had a lot of stories in the last couple of weeks. And uh, normally they're very kind of quiet and to themselves. Yeah. We don't normally hear about them in these in these major global discussions. Um, and so, yeah, if you are in Australia, please let us know what's happening because it does seem a bit strange from this side of the pond. I agree, Chad. Yeah, it certainly does. Well, we're sort of 47 minutes into our stream and we're only now moving on. Let's move on. Stuff I found interesting. 
Now, the one thing I was just kind of thinking about before I even decided to talk about this, Barry, is the idea that we kind of double talk about things quite often because you'll bring an amazing book, an amazing sort of series, <laughs> documentary, whatever the case is, movie, and then inevitably I'll catch up and I'll watch it and want to talk about my thoughts. So I apologize. I apologize, <laughs> listeners. Uh, but potentially having both sides of the of the coin uh, for you just gives a bit more perspective. Um, so when I did do the Valentine's Day sort of movie night in, which uh, we spoke about at the beginning of our episode, um, what, I, what we chose to watch was Baby Driver. And that was recommended by, uh-huh. by Barry. Uh, and not for Valentine's Day, though, Chad. <laughs> not for Valentine's Day, but but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, as part of my planning this Valentine's Day evening, I said to my fiance she could choose whatever she wanted to watch. If it was a super oh, wow. cheesy movie that I would have vetoed in the past, whatever it was, anything, she could pick whatever <laughs> she wanted. Um, and funnily enough, because we spoke about Baby Driver and I played her the, the trailer, that's what she wanted to see. So we, we rented it. Uh, we strapped it on here. We Like I said, we had the um, surround sound going through. And I thought it was I thought it was fantastic. I mean, there was a lot of action that I didn't get from, from you telling me about it. I mean, we spoke about the music. <laughs> and I think the music is the core thing to speak about. Yeah, you're completely right. There's, there's just, it's just, that is what his life is, is, is kind of keeping, uh, uh, regulating his mood through music. Uh, and obviously, because he's got the issue with his with his hearing, uh, it's kind of a nice distraction on that front. But there were so many elements to the story here. There was there was the action, which was really great. I mean, Jamie Fox, I, I felt played a, a wonderful character. Um, I mean, I, I don't know the guy's specific name, but he's he's typically in these scenes where y- you end up kind of hating him and and hoping that things don't go in his way and you end up seeing that when he falls off of off of a building and onto a burning car and all that kind of stuff and then you've also got the love element of it and uh, you've got that romance part of it so I thoroughly enjoyed it I thought it was a great recommendation thanks I'm glad to hear it Chad I, I completely agree I, I knew it would be up your alley and I'm very surprised that Cole chose it but I'm glad <laughs> that she did because that is awesome um, and I, I think it really is a really good movie it's got it's, like you say it's got everything it's got that music aspect it's got lots of action it's got drama it's got twists and turns and it's got a bit of romance in it so nothing wrong with that um, and for me Chad it's, it's one of those things where I kept thinking about that movie for a long time after I watched it. And that's the mark of a good movie in in, in my opinion, is that trying to think about how creative you have to be to build a movie like that, to build it in the way that he built it. It really was really special. And I can't believe it took me a couple of years after it came out to actually watch the thing. Yeah, as well. And also just the one thing I wanted to touch on, Barry, is uh, your point about the bullets synchronizing to, to the beat. I noticed it because I am musically interested and focused and whatever the case is, but it was done in such a way that it's, it was not a deal breaker or it was not glaringly obvious. Uh, it, it wouldn't, it have, you, you wouldn't have watched it and be like, been like, this is so cheesy. You know, the, 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 the bullets, it just doesn't even flow with the scene. It was done in the most perfect way um, that if you, if you're looking out for it, you'll certainly see it and you'll certainly feel the effect because of it, because it was, it was quite you know, it's quite quite a big effect uh, having the having those bullets match uh, match the the timestamps of the music that it was uh, following, but but also not done in such a way that it was completely cheesy or, or didn't suit the scene. 
But that that's almost a more meta description of what the movie actually did, right? Yeah. The whole point is that the music is supposed to blend into the background. Yeah, so yeah. you kind of don't realize that it's influencing the scenes in a way. And so it's this meta discussion about in a movie, the action is what sells it. And the music score is supposed to kind of pull your emotions in certain directions to make it more dramatic and make it more um, immersive. And so that's the whole idea is to be subtle enough so that it kind of feeds the, the momentum of that, those action scenes without, like you say, getting in the way. And, yeah. and that's what really good filmmakers are able to do is that it feels organic. It feels natural. It feels like it's supposed to be there. But anyone who pays a little bit of attention will realize, oh, wait, there is an awful lot of work that went into the, yeah, the shooting yeah. and the editing to make that thing absolutely pinpoint. And that's really special to see. Completely agree. Uh, Barry delivers yet another class A recommendation. I'm busy working my way through <laughs> uh, your favorite book of last year. I think it was your favorite book of last year. I'm, I'm more than halfway through. So we're going to talk about that very soon uh, as well. But let's not preempt that discussion. Uh, th <laughs> the next thing we want to talk about, Barry, is, uh, is Clubhouse. Last week, you came on here and uh you know you 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 were kind of like no no it's a time suck i don't see the i don't see where it's going etc uh, etc et and and I, I kind of agreed with all of those points um but you've kind of changed you've changed direction a little <laughs> chad i had a friend of mine reach out to me after that last episode i'm not going to name him but he knows who he is and uh he took he took some he had okay. some problem with my okay. point of view and so he tried to and, and I thought it was worth kind of bringing, lightening my stance a little bit. Okay. I think I was a little bit harsh on the app. And, and the reason I think I was a little bit harsh on the app is because when, when an app is brand new and you've got this kind of land swell and everyone's trying to jump in, there's going to be a lot of noise. There's going to be lots and lots of noise in the system. And uh, like you said, like I said last time, is a lot of the clubhouse conversation I just don't find interesting. Yeah. I don't think that that great. But that is the case with every single social media platform. And the whole point that the guy that my friend was trying to tell me about is that when the algorithm gets better and it gets more and more data, it's going to be able to figure out what are the right rooms for you. And in yeah. the way that TikTok does it amazingly well the way instagram does it amazingly well is delivering you the stuff that you care about and not showing you all the rest of the stuff clubhouse just isn't there yet and yep. so I, I i can kind of see where he's coming from and so maybe i'm prejudging the app too soon who knows what the algorithm looks like in a year's time um but i think it's just just a note that it's so early in this app that maybe yeah. it's too harsh for me to judge it before the algorithm has had enough time to figure out what i actually want and what i actually enjoy because it's not just as simple as likes and followers it's much more complicated with live audio and the way yeah, it all yeah. works and so they're going to be digging into as much data as they can to look at like how long you're listening to certain things and whatnot. But it's like a while for the algorithm to get to a point where it can pinpoint the kind of stuff that I enjoy. Does that make sense? That does make sense. That definitely makes sense. But I mean, certainly where we, where we spoke about yes, uh, last week, Barry, was your concerns were not so much on the relevance of the, con of the actual you know, contents of what it is you're listening to, but it was... Based on the, the time, the time element of it. So, I mean, you know, we were talking offline, Barry, about the idea of being able to open up Twitter and, you know, quickly getting in and, and getting out. And when we first spoke about that, I, I kind of challenged you on and I, I said, that's kind of what we need to be getting away from. We need to get, get away from these quick hits of, of dopamine. We need to get into this long form conversation that, yes, is a little bit long. And yes, there's parts that are a little bit boring. Um but ultimately, uh, you know, that's more kind of human-like social interaction. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's just, it's just interesting that the, if the the kind of potential improvement of the relevance of the platform has been enough for you to kind of negate the the time-sucking element of it, which which will <laughs> stay there. 
I don't know if it negates it. I think you bring yeah, up a good yeah. point. I, I still hold those concerns, but I just think that maybe it's too early to kind of. I think I think the way it came across last week was that I was saying <laughs> Clubhouse is gonna is dead. It's gonna die. It's not gonna succeed. Yeah, yeah. And I just don't want to be on that side of history if it ends up becoming this behemoth. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm, I'm putting the disclaimer in place. I still do think that um, there are better ways to spend our time. And I certainly haven't spent much time on it in the last week or so, to, 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 for example. Yeah. But if there were rooms that were really really powerful, and if there were rooms that I really enjoyed and I kind of was tuning in as a regular radio show type thing, then it becomes much more interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's going to be, gonna, I don't think it's going to be the kind of app where you just kind of drop in and just hope for the best and just click on one of the six rooms it shows you. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's kind of the novelty aspect of it at the moment, but I just don't know how productive that is. Obviously there's serendipity that can happen there and that's some of the magic. But I feel like as things get better and better, the algorithm will get to know me a bit better and won't show me all the, the stuff I don't want to hear about and just show me the really good stuff that matters to me. Yeah, agreed. I mean, at the moment, the way it's working, like you said, also also looks at who you're following. Um, ultimately, you know, who's online right now? And did I want, at one point in time, at some point in the future, at some point in the past, find them interesting? Will I maybe find them interesting again? Um, it's based on that rather than, like you say, um, you know, who's who's in how long have you been tuned in uh what exactly you're saying with with you know actually being able to recognize uh kind of deconstruct your your words uh into a something that the algorithm can actually recognize uh which will happen in the future um and and that and that is exciting the, the prospect of that but like we say it's still technically in beta this app um so we, we have to we do have to kind of look at it from that point of view too the, the last thing I want to want to say is that something I didn't realize is this is only on iOS. I didn't yeah. realize they have yeah. no Android app. And so I made the mistake of sending one of my invoice, invites to a friend of mine who's on Android. Right. And he's like, I can't find it in the Google Play Store. I'm like, what do you mean? And, I, yeah. and then I found out, oh, wait, it's only Apple. So it's, again, it's the Apple cult getting together, Chad, yeah. and we are all binding ourselves in this app. So that's that's a quick kind of disclaimer to anyone listening to us. If you're on Android, they are working on it, but it's not there just yet. Yeah, definitely. Not just yet. I mean, I've I've got a few invites to spare. Does anyone else uh, want <laughs> one? Uh, you know, reach out. We, we've been talking about doing like an after party kind of vibe. Uh, when, when we eventually get this live stream to uh, to attract a decent audience, maybe maybe that's a great idea for, for the future. But uh, I think we're a little bit ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> in the future chat across the, the pond is coming don't worry guys just keep with us stick with us we'll fix this stuff and it'll make sure it works <laughs> definitely let's then move on to our next segment looking ahead Alrighty, I had my podcast on tuned in in the background this morning. I went for a run. It doesn't happen very often these days, I must be honest. Uh, but but it did. It did happen today and it felt really good. And I came across a story that I, I found fascinating. I don't know if you have any prior knowledge of this, Barry. I'm really, really keen to get your thoughts. But just the idea of this kind of freaks me out a little bit. And that is that <laughs> dogs have, I mean, we know they have amazing abilities, amazing scent. Uh, I think it's sort of 40 times that of, of our, our current scent ability or whatever the case is, but they are able currently to sniff prostate cancer <laughs> better than sticking a needle in your arm and taking a blood sample. I can't believe it. Chad, when you put this on the notes, I looked at it and I was like, <laughs> is this bro science? Like, where are you getting this from? This sounds crazy. 
Um, yeah, I, I know nothing about this. And so I'm excited to hear if you have any more info for us, because it's, it sounds too good to be true. It sounds a bit bizarre, but then again, we, we've chatted about how dogs have this amazing ability yeah. to, to pick up on not just, not just sense stuff, but also have almost an intuition. You can almost feel like yeah. a dog knows that something's going to go wrong before a human. And I can't explain why, or I don't know if that's the case scientifically, but it certainly does feel like that an anecdotal experience. And so maybe this is one of those weird things where we just, haven't figured out why they're able to do it, Chad. But but how do we leverage this thing? Can we actually turn this into something really powerful for humans? Yeah, I mean, it, it's totally legit. This is totally not bro science. Um, <laughs> like I said, I, it, it was on a very credible uh, podcast, and I, I'm I'm even looking now. There's you know a whole bunch of studies and stuff that have have been done. I mean. It's obviously testing urine samples, uh, looking for prostate cancer, and they say here from this 2015 study, the the, the accuracy. A percentile here is 98 to 99 percent uh, accurate wow. in terms of getting a positive result um and you know i just i just find that absolutely fascinating obviously it takes ages to to train a dog to be able to do this um you know th there's a lot of variables from that point of view but what scientists are doing and this is the looking ahead part of this uh because yes although this is cool general knowledge and maybe we'll <laughs> do well in a quiz uh one day that you're in uh, to know that this is actually true where this plays into looking ahead is that scientists are now trying to mimic this ability in dogs uh, into kind of a, a dog robot that can also use scent uh, strangely in some strange ways. And they're, they're kind of using artificial intelligence uh, with two test subjects, two dogs that are currently trained to do this at the moment um, in, in trying to map out technology that can be able to do this. And I find it fascinating uh, to, to, to look at scent as an indicator rather than microscopes or, or the way that we typically analyze samples. That's so fascinating because like you say, the, the use of AI in, in cancer treatment so far has been using sight, right? Yep. Looking at x-rays, looking at uh, test results and kind of looking for anomalies in that respect. And it's really proved very, very powerful in, 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 in finding anomalies much better than a human doctor can. So now coming to another sense is, is absolutely amazing. And it just kind of proves that Data is everything, right? If you can get enough data on yep. something, with today's machine learning techniques and today's algorithms, you really can do incredible, incredible yep. things. And so if we can find a way to leverage whatever the dogs are doing and kind of codify that into some sort of program or piece of software that can help us, it can make a huge difference. Cancer is one of those things that everyone is affected by. No matter who you are, you know someone or you've been affected by it in some way. It's one of those scourges that we haven't figured out across yep. the world. And the sooner we diagnose it, the sooner we find it, the better chance we have, right? And Definitely. so I'm all for all of these kind of things. I want to be working on this from all angles. And this sounds like a really fascinating one, Chad. I need to go and read more about this. Definitely. Well, when you do, let me know offline. Uh, I'm keen to, <laughs> keen to get your thoughts. Let's then move on to our last segment. Develop and grow. Okay, so two very quick things to, to chat through here. But the first one I, I want to get your take on as well, because basically we've spoken about this idea of style. Um, and it applies to all kind of creative endeavors. Obviously, the one that I'm most interested at the moment, and that changes quite often. Uh, but at the <laughs> moment, it is it is photography and uh, struggling to find out a style in photography. That is, when you take a photo, they all look consistent. They're all consistently you. Someone can kind of pick it out of a gallery and say, well, that is Chad's photo. And uh, I mean, I was on Clubhouse and basically had a, a discussion with uh, with someone who 
is uh, he's a Fujifilm Global Ambassador and, uh, you know, full-time wedding photographer, all of the rest of it. That's the one cool thing about Clubhouse, I must be honest, is, is you got people who actually charge for mentoring and they charge hefty amounts and you're able to, to access this kind of uh, advice for free which is really good for the moment, for the moment for free. Um, but but I, I pose this question in, in how do I develop my style and how do I, how do I figure all of this out? And obviously we, we got, we got uh, Mitch Lally's take on it. I've got quite a few people's take on it. it. It seems as though no matter how many answers I get, I'm still not getting the answer I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> but I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of just introduce this idea to you, Barry, uh, in, your, in your kind of field of endeavor, being writing... Uh, also, you know, performance arts and uh, music, all of that kind of stuff. The idea of using a reference group to guide your stylistic choice. So this is very similar to, to what we chatted about with, with Mitch in looking at people whose work you like, uh, picking elements of it that you like, um, and, and ultimately developing your unique combination of all of those attributes. Uh, but this idea here is is to actually it's a little bit more than that so it's every single time you want to start editing it's a matter of picking out five or six images and putting them next to the image you're editing and actually using them as a baseline and strangely enough i've never thought of this in in editing photos but if you listen to people mastering music they you know because when you sit down in your studio and you start mastering a song uh depending on what you've listened to that day your, your kind of baseline is way out of whack. So I've, I've heard it's very common practice for someone to start mastering a record and listen to like a Michael Jackson track or listen to, you know, a, a particular track to, to put them in that place. And then from there, uh, you know, start to, start to do their own work. So just that idea of starting out with, with this reference group, but, but not just using a reference group in a, in a kind of... Uh, abstract way but actually physically quote that reference group every single time you start to do work do you see any similarities here for for writing i do chad there there is a kind of a very common um practice that 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 if you read any write, books on writing that try and improve your writing one of the common techniques or practices is they'll take they'll say take a piece of famous literature so take a little passage from a charles dickens novel or some sort of famous piece or a poem or whatnot and put it on one side and then rewrite that same piece in your own words but okay. keep the same meanings and the same sort of the same storyline and the whole idea is to try and force you to understand what makes that passage special and then how do you put your own spin on it to kind of change the way it feels for, for your own audience? And that's kind of a practice that you can do to kind of try and get better at writing because that's the way you, you realize, you actually dig into every single sentence and make sure you understand why is that word chosen or why is it said in that way? Or why is the metaphor in place? And so it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think for photography, it's, it's even more powerful because of the mm. visual aspect. Yeah, this idea yeah. of putting a little board next to you, I kind of imagine a vision board of sorts yeah. where you've got five images and then you're looking at that for inspiration and you're trying to pull some of the best parts of that into your work. I've got a book recommendation for you, Chad. It's, it's a book cool. called Steal Like an Artist by Orson Kleon. It's very short. It'll take you one or two hours to finish. And it really is talking about this exact thing. So many of us get caught up in this idea that what we do has to be 100% original. We're like, I want to make this thing my own. It needs to have Chad Sturley's blueprint <laughs> on it. It needs to look completely on its own. But the truth of the matter is that 
none of us do that. We all steal ideas whether we know it or not. Everything is inspired by certain things. Yep. And so the thesis of this book is kind of like steal, like be, be comfortable stealing ideas, stealing concepts like an artist does, and then turn that into something unique by capturing a couple different pieces of other people's work. And obviously you do so with tact. You don't just copy it sure, outright. Sure. You kind of do it with tact. But the idea is that we, we have to be okay with that because the way we create new art is not by coming up with something 100% original. If you yep. think that's how it works, you are kidding yourself, right? Everything you've ever come into contact with, everything you've ever consumed is impacting the way you think and the way that you create things. Yep. And so rather than ignoring that fact, embrace it. Still like an artist, take that reference group and figure out what do I like about these five photos and can I try and practice that one skill in this particular edit? And that's how you get 1% better every single time. So, Chad, I love this idea. I think you should definitely uh, try it for a couple of things and yep. kind of come back to us once you've tried it a, a bit. Um, but I think it makes a lot of sense to me and I can see the parallels in my writing. Nice. I like that. Um, and yeah, great recommendation on the Steel Like an Artist. I was going to try and get a picture up of it so uh, people could see what the cover looks like. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't look, it certainly looks like a very short book. I mean, I've seen... Uh, one of the YouTubers we follow referenced this this book quite a lot, so uh, it certainly seems to be one that I that I need to look into definitely. Um, that makes that all makes a whole lot of sense. The second part of develop and grow that I wanted to chat about this week, and uh, I mean it's an article that I came across, and I think it's I think it's tackling a very important topic. And I must confess, I have not read the full article. Um, <laughs> I, I had all intentions to get to it, but but what I what I what I did read. Uh, was was very good. It's a Harvard Business Review article talking about burnout and and actually uh, you know the, the evolution of burnout. What what is this burnout thing? Um, and and I, something I I had no idea of Barry is that in in 2019 the World Health Organization have actually defined burnout. Uh, they've listed it in their international classification of diseases. And I find that really interesting because it, it kind of picks it away of being this thing that some people who can't cope have or some people who push themselves over the edge or whatever the case is, uh, for this individual kind of label uh, and onto something a lot more, I think a lot more, um, you know, constructive. And uh, basically what they've defined it as is a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress uh, that has not been successfully managed. Um, and, and basically what the idea of this article from Harvard Business Review is, is saying that this idea of burnout is not an individual problem. It's not a problem that Sally in accounts who can't handle her workload is having. It's an organizational problem. And it's something that organizations need to try and tackle internally um, through their policies and procedures and whatever the case is. And, and it kind of points a finger at a lot of organizations in saying, oh, cool, yeah, well, what, what, what we'll do is we'll pay a yoga instructor, instructor to come in once a week and, uh, you know, people who want to go to that yoga class can do that. We'll subsidize the gym memberships. We'll pay for, you know, for a resource that people can access when they need it. Um, but ultimately, what that is doing is saying, hey, you individual, when you're having this problem, you're going to need to go and, and kind of self-soothe in a way. You're going to need to fix your own issues. Um, and, 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 that's, and that's not where this discussion needs to be. Um, so, so, so I like it. Um, I mean, have you ever thought about this idea? 
I've, I've thought a lot about burnout, of course, because my, my, my career background was in investment banking for a little bit, <laughs> and it was a very, very common topic in, in yeah. that sphere. And so this really resonates with me, and I'm very excited that it's getting some of the recognition that it really needs. I, I really, really strongly agree with the idea that it's organizational, not yeah. individual. Um, having seen some of the working culture at RMB and investment banking in general, it really wasn't healthy. And it's one of the major reasons that I left. And I remember having a discussion with a friend of mine who's still at the bank today, um, right in the beginning of the first lockdown. I think it was about May or so, May or June. And I was asking him like, how things are going. Like, how is he doing with this work from home lifestyle? And he was saying that things have got even worse. Like from the 12 hour days you used to work in the office, yep. all of a sudden, because there was lockdown and you didn't have any other excuses, he was having team meetings at 10.30 in the evening yep. and he was getting calls on a Saturday morning and it was just completely taking over his life. And he felt like he was accomplishing nothing because as the burnout started to increase and he started to lose yep. confidence and morale and energy, it took him longer and longer to do the work, which then kind of spiraled the problem. And it all comes down to what kind of working culture you have in your organization. What precedent are the managers setting? If your manager is phoning you at 10.30 on a Thursday night, there's something wrong. Like that's, that's not healthy and it's not how work is supposed to be. They don't pay you for those hours. They pay you for the eight hours or whatever the story is, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and we are voluntarily kind of submitting to that and that's what's causing all of these problems. And so... While it's easy to say that, it's hard to stand up if you're an individual. It's hard to like put, put up your hand and say, no, I'm not going to answer my boss's calls at, at that time of night. But when they have the negotiating power and they hold your salary in their hands, it's, it's hard to say no, right? And so this really has to be an organizational thing. And Chad, you hit the nail on the head with these wellness teams. <laughs> yeah. with these companies that will spend all this money and put all this marketing out about the yoga studio and the gym and the, the, fan, the mental health and the counselors and all of this stuff. And that's all wonderful. But if your manager doesn't let you go and do that stuff, yep, then it doesn't matter. Exactly. Yep. Right? It doesn't matter if the gym is open if your manager is going to give you work at 10 p.m. on yep. a Thursday. Um, and so it has to be more than lip service. It can't just be something you stick on your mission statement to say, we value employee wellness. It has to be an actual cultural thing within your organization to realize that there are points in time where you have to say to your employee, like, go and take a couple of days and kind of recover and get back to where you're supposed to be. And when I was in the investment bank, that just wasn't happening. And, and that is the reason you have so many smart young people doing two or three years there and then realizing life's not yep. worth this and leaving. And that's why you have such a high turnaround in those corporate finance roles and those investment banking roles. So yeah, long way of saying, Chad, I, I love this idea. <laughs> yeah, and you, and you kind of wonder if it has to be that way. Like, does it have to be, does it have to be a high turn, turnover? Um, I mean, it's it's not it's not true that there are not enough people there willing and able to do the job because you know there's a there's a turnover there clearly is a market for it. So if you could uh, just stagger the workload, uh, like you say, get the culture right in terms of what managers uh, kind of actually empathize with their people, setting boundaries in terms of meeting times, and I think you you also hit the nail on the head there, Barry, which is. Uh, kind of part of the reason why this article is written in the first place is looking at burnout after the pandemic and after we switched to virtual this virtual world um but what they've done is they've analyzed what the main kind of causes of burnout are and i think i think that will be of interest to our listeners too because i i thought they were interesting as well so i mean if if any of these things kind of rings true for you and you're feeling uh you know you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed at work whatever the case is well maybe this is one of the reasons why um, and there are some actually great uh, recommendations in the article too so if, if you do want to go and, and check it out definitely do but the main causes are an unsustainable workload 
I mean, that's obvious. That's obvious to all of us. A perceived lack of control. I mean, I've been in that position myself where you know what you need to do, but you you just don't have the buy-in of someone to to do it. You know, there's some firm policy or whatever the case is getting in your way. Clearly, clearly that's going to cause you to burn out. Insufficient rewards for effort. And that's talking, Barry, to being remunerated for nine to five and, and asking, being asked to work beyond that. I mean, at that negotiation part of, of putting a contract together, you know, you've got these butterflies and rainbows in your head that says, yeah, this is the core contractual hours. Um, and, and very seldom does that end up being, being the truth. Um, and, and that's, that's a cultural problem. Um, lack of, lack of, lack of a supportive community. So having colleagues who are able to empathize with your workload or your current, uh, situation or people who are being difficult, whatever the case is, that obviously helps. Um, and a culture of an organization obviously builds that you know level of community lack of fairness i think this also affects a lot of people who are singled out in the team uh you know people who uh, there's loads of concerns about uh you know gender or race or uh sexual affinity or whatever the case is where a lot of people feel like they're being hard done by uh for whatever reason is and and that obviously can cause burnout and then the last one is mismatch values and skills um and and i mean obviously if you if you are really exceptional at, at doing one particular thing uh, but you're being asked asked to do something that that kind of uh, you know goes against your values of course that's going to cause cause you issues so um, I mean if any of those things rings true for you uh, definitely have a look at this article and try and have a conversation with your manager because potentially uh, it's it's not you uh, it's your organization yeah, definitely. And I really encourage people to stand up for themselves. I think that's the, the, the biggest piece of advice that I've given to a lot of my friends that they'll say, my boss keeps emailing me at that time. I, mm. I, what am I supposed to do? And, and, and the answer has to be, you don't respond. Yep. You wait till the next morning, right? And you have to have the confidence in yourself. And I understand it's much easier to say mm. than done. I get that. <laughs> but you have to stand up for yourself because if you don't, nothing is ever going to change and they're going to walk all over you. And I've seen that so many times. If you're able to stand up and say, listen, my work speaks for itself. It's high quality. I care about more than just my, my work. Here. I have other stuff going on in my life. And I'm going to do everything I can during the required hours and, and yep. within reason sometimes yep. going a bit over. But I, I have to, you have to protect the time for other stuff. Because when you're lying on your deathbed one day, you're not going to think, I wish I'd worked harder. Definitely. You're going to think, why didn't I take some time to enjoy time with family and with friends and, and doing other stuff that I enjoy? Life is way too short to sell your whole life to a corporate, a big corporation, right? So please, please stand up for yourself and force that cultural change from within. I would love to see more companies going the route of trying a four-day work week or trying yep. a restricted yep. time or trying yep. restricted notifications or all of these sorts of ideas as to how to make things more sustainable. I want companies to be pushing that. And the only way that happens is through grassroots movements people inside those organizations standing up and say, hold on a minute, this is ridiculous. I cannot be on six hours of Zoom calls a day because then I end up working six hours after those Zoom calls to do all the work that was agreed to be done in the Zoom calls. Yeah, yeah 100%. I could not have said that better myself. And in fact, what I need to do, Barry, <laughs> is say amen, man. Amen. Barry. <laughs> 
that one goes to you because uh, you, you're, you're so right. And the other thing is it's, it's counterproductive. It's diminishing returns. There's only so long a human being can focus on a particular task. So, you know, for me, the whole thing is, like you say, apply yourself in the period of time that you're being paid to work. Apply yourself fully um, and then try and, like you say, shut yourself off uh, and stand up for yourself because it is very important. That's been a cracking episode. We had loads to to chat through. We're over. We're twenty <laughs> minutes over. My word! But uh, I see I see the people who have been with us uh, throughout this live stream are still here. So that is a very good sign. And uh, yeah, thanks thanks everyone for for tuning in. Um, I'm I'm certainly loving this live stream. I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, but yeah, good episode, Barry. Definitely, we have lots and lots of stuff to chat about. As we said, uh, jam jam packed. But we hope that there was something in here of value to you. And we'd love to hear your thoughts. For those who are live with us, you are champions. Thank you so much. And to those who are listening to after the fact, yeah, yeah. you guys, we also love you lots. And so okay. please keep tuning in every single week. There's lots of good stuff coming from across the pond. The 66 in the bag, Chad. It's very exciting. Yeah, those numbers just keep racking up. As always, you're obviously watching us on youtube we are across the pond podcast we're on twitter too at across underscore podcast on instagram as well at across the podcast. and last but not least we're on facebook too at across the pond podcast do go and check us out on all of those platforms unless you're in unless, unless you're in you're australia, australia. <laughs> then, then i don't know what you do <laughs> too true do go and check us out on all of those platforms because that's where you're going to find out about these live streams if you are listening after the fact and you wish you could have been in the room with us while we recorded it that's what you're going to find out about all of the the live streams uh, coming to you in the future but that's all for us today thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you again next week oh, across the pond.